Um, I'd like to join uh, Carolyn and Ryan in welcoming you this morning. My name is Devonna Brazier, and I am here to share God's Word with you. We are still in Genesis. Uh, you can follow along. We'll be in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1, 6, and then we're also going to read 13 through 24. This is God's Word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it, and all the days or in painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us. Knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken, and he drove the man out. He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for the reading. My name is Brian Kay. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors of the church here, and uh, glad to be diving into this complicated and very rich and very old text with you. Let's, um, let's dive in, because we are, if you hadn't heard in this series, going through the early parts of the book of Genesis, and we're noticing that this is a book that is all about relationships. As Pastor Bart said, in some of the printed material that goes along with this series. And if you didn't know that, that's available at the church website, kind of a printed guide to all of these weeks. But Bart said that in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, relationships get worked out in a myriad of ways. Relationship with the cosmos, relationship with God, with others, relationship with evil, relationship to rest and also to work. And so we're taking a week on each of those topics and others, and so we landed today in the typical way this works with Bart and my partnership. He assigns me uh, the tough texts, evil. We're here to talk about evil today. Can you even talk about evil? 
in the contemporary world is one question I'd have. Because the word itself can feel a little bit melodramatic. It can feel a little bit morally simplistic, perhaps. The word evil can feel maybe quaint or almost childish. Like you might say, well, evil, that is a wonderful thing, Brian, for the Marvel Universe and for those fantasy novels that you like to read. But, you know, in the real world of real people, there's a lot more complexity and there's more shades of gray in uh, kind of ethical and moral dealings. And so um, let's just not be so black and white about it. And there really is kind of this, what you might call a sophisticated view. I am putting this in air quotes if you're listening on an MP3 years from now. <laughs> sophisticated in air quotes. <laughs> that just occurred to me. Some people not, might not see the video. Uh, the sophisticated view would say that what we used to call evil is nowadays better explained by other categories of thinking. You know, an evil person is really, that's really just a dysfunctional person, Brian. Or it's a mentally ill person, perhaps. Or it's a person who is uh, preoccupied by their own needs and taking care of their own self, and they're blind to the effects of their life and actions on other people. A little bit about my own testimony here. Uh, you may know that I also work in, in mental health several days of the week, of every week, and I've heard in so many sessions with so many people over the years, hundreds if not thousands of stories of, um, of real darkness and of real horror of uh, the actions and the effects of actions of one person on another. And frankly, I am actually thankful for some of the sophisticated view because there really is such a thing as narcissism that occurs, which is a little bit different than being a sociopath, which is a little bit different than having what we call antisocial personality disorder, which is a little bit different than kind of a, a blind trauma response that might be f causing flailing and harm to others. I'm actually thankful for all of those sophisticated categories. However, as someone who's also compelled by scripture, I would say none of those categories give you enough room to account for all the data. That's one way to put it. Because there's something more going on than just these sophisticated diagnoses. There's something very often going on that the Bible calls evil. You have to have a category as broad and deep and I think as profound and perhaps shocking to our system as evil to explain the nature of uh, the harm, the nature of the malice that occurs in our world and around us and even inside of us. So the Bible does say that evil as a category, it must be named. And it's not something, scripturally speaking, that is rare. Evil isn't something that just occurs at the extremes of human experience as if it only occurs in concentration camps or it only include, occurs in drug cartels, let's say. The Bible's view of evil is that it occurs all around us. It is, in the words of Genesis chapter four, something that is crouching at the door in fact, of all of our hearts. So let's dive into it. We're going to make three kind of movements through this passage, looking at evil, the reality of evil, then the strategy of evil, and then finally the, the, uh, the conquest of evil. So the reality of evil. On one hand, evil, according to the Bible, is an alien force. We see it in Genesis 3 here, an alien force that invades our world really from the outside. In this case, it's in the form of the serpent who comes in and first visits Eve. The serpent, not to get deep, deep, deep into this, but you may know this, it is 
a kind of visible, visible manifestation of Satan, uh, a fallen angel who had become entranced by his own beauty, we think, who decided that it was better to um, serve himself rather than to serve God. There's a great line from John Milton's epic poem called Paradise Lost that, uh, where Milton puts these words into the mouth of Satan. Satan says, it is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And that is a pretty good summary of evil. It is better to, the attitude that it is better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. But to say that evil is something that comes from the outside is to say that anytime you hear that voice yourself, uh, an offering, uh, a suggestion that it is better to, um, you know, it goes like this usually, you know, it's, you deserve your own little kingdom. You deserve your own, you deserve to be entirely in charge of your own life. You deserve a place where nobody ever tells you what to do. You deserve a lot of stuff in life, and if someone, people want to take it away, it's kind of on them if you have to bring harm to them. That's really the voice of the serpent, and it does come from the outside. And evil shows up in our lives anytime we hear that whisper, whether it's from books you're reading, stuff you're watching on television, something your neighbor says to you. But Scripture would also say that this voice of evil is not so alien. It comes from the outside, yes, but it also comes from the inside of us. We're infected with it, unfortunately. And I decided when I was preparing this that I'm going to nominate the next paragraph here to, uh, as the least popular thing that I will ever say from this pulpit. <laughs> the next 60 seconds, you will like it the least, perhaps. Uh, to say that evil comes from within is an echo of this Christian doctrine. We call it the doctrine of original sin that comes from this chapter, Genesis chapter 3. And that teaching says that since human beings first cooperated with evil in the way that Eve and then Adam in this story did cooperate and yielded and said yes to the serpent and said no to God, since that moment, all humanity following them have been really infected with the same impulse to say yes to self and to say no to God, to say, I'll have my own kingdom, thank you very much. And that means it's an impulse that is always not just whispering at us from without, but is coming up from within us in the quiet of our own heart. Now, it's true, some people hear original sin and they think, are you saying that the, the sweet little neighbor that I have in Arinda, at the end of the cul-de-sac, is as dark and depraved as, I don't know, pick your world leader. Who's, uh, he's, she's, a, she's a Mussolini in, in disguise or a, or a Hitler. And that's not what the Bible would say. It's not what this teaching has ever said. Original sin just means that we're not all as bad as the next one and not all as bad as we could be when it comes to this internal voice of darkness. It just means that the same principle infects all of us not to the same degree, not in the same ways, um, but it's in there, and you should be aware that it's in there. Uh, the problem is that if you're not aware that it's in there or you outright deny it, you will likely become a person who's tempted to believe that evil is always only out there. It's in the other guy. It's in the other group. It's in the other tribe. It's in the other political party. It's in the other whatever. Um, that is too simplistic, and you can see how it's a potentially very dangerous idea. Alexander Solzhenitsyn has a great line about this. He is, was a 
he was an imprisoned Russian novelist and historian and commentator who wrote this massive work called the Gulag Archipelago. And this is what he says about the problem of believing that evil is only out there and not in here. And his line is, if only it were that simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the dividing line, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The dividing line of evil cuts through the heart of every person. There is both good within us and, yes, evil, says Solzhenitsyn. Now that's bracing. So let's talk about the strategy then of evil. How does it get to us? Well, in verse 1, the serpent is saying here, did God really say, Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The text actually says, depending on your translation here, that the serpent was crafty. Um, other translations say he was cunning. And so part of the strategy is in a very cunning way to start to suggest, number one, that what God says is not true. That is, the, that is really the opening salvo of evil, to suggest that what God clearly says in Scripture or what he had said to Adam and Eve is not it's not true. God has some other motives. We're going to deconstruct the voice of God a little bit, Eve, and suggest that he might be up to something else in this very simple command. The strategy of evil is often to make uh, clear statements of God and to suggest that they are really kind of bizarre or they're, these days it would be a suggestion that the statements of God in Scripture are kind of outdated. They're for another, they're for another age. They're a little bit foolish. There are a lot of things that the Bible says that evil would have us doubt. Um, I was cataloging just a few of them here that seem to be evil's particular targets of this kind of a craftiness. But the Bible says, for example, God so loved the world. Evil doesn't really want you to believe that God loves the world. He wants you to believe that his love is narrow and only for a few. The Bible says, you are my beloved a thousand ways. Evil doesn't want you to believe that you're the beloved. It wants you to believe that you're sort of on, uh, you're, you're kind of in an iffy stance with God at all times. The Bible says that even if you are a person who is suffering, your suffering won't have the last word, that God is somehow in the future going to redeem all of your suffering if you are in him and one day make a new heavens and a new world where uh, a victory triumphs over all suffering and all suffering is bent toward a full redemption that makes it somehow beautiful that it happened in the first place. Evil does not want you to believe any of that. Suffering is, must be dealt with now. It's intolerable. There's no guarantee of a future. You've got to carpe diem your way through life. Make the most of it because this life is all you get, baby. That's what evil wants you to believe, and it says it to you in a thousand ways, both inside and outside of us. Another thing that evil does, and it's in its strategy is to doubt, it wants us to doubt God's provision for us. Uh, to doubt that God is really um, beneficent, that he is instead miserly, that God is instead rather withholding. He's kind of scroogey. God is always slightly frowning at us. That's what evil, that's what evil wants you to believe. Verse six, here's one way to see that. Verse six, it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, dot, 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 she ate it. 
Um, this was the one tree that Eve and Adam were barred from. But it says what Eve saw in the tree was uh, something that was delicious. She saw some good food in front of her. It must have been a really fantastic looking, I would, I would imagine it's a peach. You can decide your own fruit of choice, I suppose. It was, it was delicious for food. It was pleasing to the eye. There was a kind of a physical beauty to it. All Eve wanted was great food, <laughs> beauty, and wisdom. And God doesn't want you to have those things, evil says. And that is, it's such a lie on its face because if you read, you know, all the verses up until this one verse, God had already set them in this incredibly beautiful garden where there's over, it was overflowing with food. It was overflowing with physical beauty. There was a kind of wisdom that was very likely progressively coming into them as they walked with God every day. God, in, the, in fact, does want you to have all things. He, he made beautiful things. He made great food. Uh, he made physical beauty. He made wisdom and wants you to, to pursue it. But evil says, he doesn't really want you to have the best wine. He doesn't want you to have the best food. He doesn't want you to have the real depths of wisdom. You can have your little pale versions of wisdom over here, but the real way the world works. He wants to keep you out of the control room. That's what evil does. It turns God into a kind of a prudish, narrow-minded joy killer. Listen to the degree that that voice is in your head when you think about God. That is not the voice of wisdom. That is actually the voice of evil. The third strategy is that evil wants you to participate in your own marring, your own destruction. You know, if you only watch horror movies, I, um, I confess that I have over the, my life, even into my adult life, I admit, been a kind of a fan of a certain genres of horror movies. And you might say, isn't that like tempting your heart into evil? And I would tend to say, no, it's actually making the lines between good and evil very plain and in a kind of a refreshing way. And in horror movies, often evil comes in and it wants to kill the person. But the serpent doesn't want to kill Eve here. If evil kills you, you're a Christian, you just go straight to heaven. That's not really a win for evil. What evil wants you to do is to participate in your own downfall, to say yes to the things that start to decay you from within. The serpent here, as you notice, doesn't hit Eve over the head with a log and then force feed her the fruit. He becomes crafty. He seeks to persuade her. The strategy here is not just to get her to bail out on God and to break her and Adam away from God, but is to entice her that she'll forever bear the shame of her own choice and to be haunted with the shame of her own choice. And that leads to self-loathing. And that leads to the marring of our own heart. Many of us deal with shame of the past choices that we have made in our lives. You deal with memories of things that you said or did in your teens or your 20s, and now it's 50 years later, and you still see those scenes, those moments where you made a choice that hurt other people that you cared about. Evil wants you to replay those scenes again and again, and then to be led very quietly to the, to the conclusion that you are a loser. You are dark. You are worthless. You're really kind of a lost cause, and everyone that likes you now wouldn't like you if they knew about those scenes. Evil wants you to do this very kind of a, someone I knew in respect once said, evil is, 
it's boring at its core. It just keeps you in a perpetual cul-de-sac of just looping and looping and looping. But it wants you to loop back to those scenes that remind you that you're worthless because of what you've done. You might say, well, Brian, doesn't conscience want to, re- you know, conscience is a gift of God. It wants us to remind us of what we've done so that we don't um, get too cocky and don't become too self-aggrandizing. That's true. But what conscience does, conscience, when it's under the influence of the Holy Spirit, according to Scripture, it does bring your attention back to where you've done wrong and where you've brought harm and where you've hurt others. But it does that and says, Brian, you've got to face this. You've got to name the thing that you've done, the evil, the malintent but name it and then make reparations. Apologize to the person, repent to God, and remember that as you do, you have a Father in heaven who opens his arms to sinners and always forgive those that come to him humbly. You may be restored. Evil doesn't want any of that language. It's just the dead end of you are a darkling. You have a dark force within you, and there's no redeeming it. That's the difference between conscience and the voice of evil within. Um, Don't mix those up. Well, what's the solution to evil, the conquest of evil? There are two verses in our text that give you, it's just a glimpse. It's not a big, it's a glimpse. You will miss it unless, uh, unless you know what to look for here. Verse 15, God says to the serpent, and I will one day, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And then if you fast forward to verse 21, God made a garment of skin for Adam and his wife to clothe them. There are consequences to our participation with evil. And I'm skipping over this whole section, which we call the curse, where it talks about all these horrible things that happen between people and our relationship to work and the land. But... um, In all of those broken relationships that are the consequence of evil as it manifests in us, God has made a provision that he hints at here where he will one day destroy evil in all of its its versions and restore us from within, utterly cleanse us. It begins in verse 15, like I said, and it also finishes again in verse 21. Verse 15, I might have said this before up here because I love this word, proto-evangelion, one of my favorite one of my favorite uh, hoity-toity sounding Bible words. That just means the first gospel, the proto-evangelion, the first hint that the gospel of Jesus Christ will one day be how the Bible ends. And the proto-evangelion says that one day a descendant of Eve, a human descendant of Eve, will come and will trounce ultimately the serpent and all of his work. He will destroy the work of evil, the voice of evil, though he will do so at cost to himself. The serpent will strike him on the heel. Must have been a very mysterious uh, verse for uh, Adam and Eve to hear. But it's the promise of Jesus in its most cryptic but enticing form. But verse 21, I'll just camp out on this. God covers Adam and Eve with these animal skins. We didn't read this middle section of the text where Adam and Eve, once they've taken the fruit and they feel that shame coming in and they're starting to hear the voice of evil now inside of their own heart, they scramble and try to make clothes out of themselves, for themselves out of plants and fig leaves and whatever else they were using in the garden and it's kind of a disaster. And so God comes in in really an act of great mercy and gives them a new set of clothes. He does kick them out of the garden, but he sends them away dressed in animal skins. Old Testament scholars have noted you don't really get an animal skin without an animal dying, giving up its life. 
This is the first animal sacrifice, you could say, of the Old Testament. The first place where we see that one creature gives up its life to cover the shame of another. And it also is a seed, isn't it? It's a picture of one day down the road. The way this seed of the woman is going to have conquest over evil will be to give up his life to cover our shame at the cost of his flesh, at the cost of his blood. The conquest of evil begins with the rule of Jesus Christ in our hearts. The second thing to say about the conquest of evil, though, is that you and I are invited to participate in it ourselves. Number one, it's done for us, by us, by the champion Jesus Christ. But secondly, we are invited in, this is always how it works in the Christian gospel, Jesus does this thing and then he invites you to sort of take up the same ministry in your own lesser way. We're invited into the conquest of evil ourselves. So let me talk about that very briefly before we close. How do we participate in the conquest of evil? Um, you know, for the years, for years at our house, I might have mentioned this once because uh, <laughs> I keep finding ways to turn this into an illustration. We have this little pla- uh, plastic placard by our front door in our house that says, what good will you do today? It's kind of this re- reminder as you leave the house, we're on, to be, we're on to be on a mission of good doing. But we could just as easily change that placard to say, what harm to the kingdom of darkness will you do today? What conquest of evil will you commit today? Leo Tolstoy, I'm only quoting Russian novelists today, by the way. That occurred to me last night at about 11 p.m. Leo Tolstoy said, he who experiences the joy of repaying evil with good just once will never let an opportunity to feel this joy pass by. He who experiences the joy of repaying evil with good, in other words, doing conquest over evil, will never again let an opportunity to feel this joy pass by. You are called and invited to be a kind of a joyful warrior in the conquest of evil and of the scaling back of the kingdom of darkness to the degree that God affords you the power and the opportunity. How does this happen? Here's a few ways. Every time in your life you forgive someone else's faults rather than making them pay for it, you are doing harm to the kingdom of darkness. Every time you pull aside a discouraged person who's in your life and you tell them that even though they feel discouraged that you see some fragment of God's goodness in them, that you see that God has purpose for their life, you are in that moment doing harm to the kingdom of darkness. Anytime you remind someone of God's abiding love for them, his delight in them, when they are in a moment of doubting his love for them, you are doing harm to the kingdom of darkness. Anytime you invite another person in your life to tell them, to tell you their story of hurt, the story of their life, the story of those 20-something dark stories that we have of shame, and you invite them to tell you that story, and you listen well, and instead of recoiling from them after they tell you that story, you say, I hear you, and I am with you, and I'm not so different from you, and here's why. When you do that, you are doing harm to the kingdom of darkness. You are scaling back the serpent's reign. Whenever you say, Lord God, you said it. I I read it in your scriptures. You said it. I wish you hadn't said it, but apparently you did say it. (laughs) And so not my will, but yours be done, Lord. Not my will, but yours be done. That's what Jesus Christ said in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the opposite of the serpent's strategy. Whenever you say that to God, you are scaling back the kingdom of darkness. Whenever you say to the Father in the Lord's Prayer, Lord Father, deliver us from evil. You are doing harm to the kingdom of darkness. 
And whenever you join with Paul's words in Colossians chapter 2, verses 15, whenever you say to Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, thank you that you have disarmed the powers and the authorities of the world. Thank you that you have disarmed evil decisively on the cross, making a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them by the cross. And Lord Jesus, would you one day finish your work of conquest when you come again? Whenever you say that to God, to the Lord Jesus, you are scaling back the dominion of darkness. Very last words. What's our relationship with evil? My hope is that you would believe that it's real, that evil is real, that it's personal, it's not an abstract force, that it's a, a voice that comes from outside of us, but it's also a voice that comes from within inside of us because of our own um, corruption that Jesus is dealing with. But that you would also believe that Jesus has decisively dealt with evil, decisively on the cross. First by his death, but also by his second coming, which will one day complete the work. And my hope is that you would also take up the conquest of evil the way our God invites us to do, using only his weapons, the weapons of forgiveness, the weapons of timely truth-telling, the weapons of love, and the weapons of surrendering to the God who loves us and will one day bring us back to a new Eden. Uh, let's pray that some of that would be true of us. Father, thank you for this challenging text, for the way that it revises some of our simplistic ways of thinking about sin or darkness or uh, forces that we dare not name as evil. Help us to see that there is evil in the world. But may we not be discouraged by that, but always fix our eyes on your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ who has made a public spectacle of evil and will one day complete his work. Allow us to join you in that conquest. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.